Hey, how you doing today? Uh, my name's uh, Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If I haven't met you, I hope to, to meet you sometime soon. We want to finish up a conversation on prayer uh, that we've been having these last few weeks. Can, can you believe next week is Easter? Uh, it just seems like a couple weeks ago, uh, Buckeye Chuck was telling us, hey, you're going to have an early spring. Buckeye Chuck was wrong, right? <laughs> Well, we've been looking at prayer. We've looked at well, what is prayer, why pray. Pastor Dan led us through the disciples' prayer. Uh, we've been looking at some psalms that demonstrate how to pray through fear, through pain, through doubt. Uh, if you've missed any of these, I encourage you to, to go online and, and take a look at these, get caught up. Uh, but today I want to encourage us to look at prayer in a way that heightens our awareness of how we pray and what we actually pray for. Heard a story one time about a small town. It was a dry town, no alcohol. But in time, a, a local business decided, hey, this town needs a bar. And so he decided, I'm going I'm to build a bar that's going to include some kind of risque inter entertainment. And, and in response, the local church, which was right across the road, uh, decided they were going to have an all-night prayer meeting to ask God to intervene. Well, it just so happened that shortly after the, the prayer meeting, lightning struck the bar and it burnt to the ground. <laughs> uh, the owner of the bar ended up suing the church, claiming the prayers of this little church were responsible. Well, the church was like, hey, we're not the blame for lightning striking your bar. Well, the judge heard both sides, and this is what he observed. He says, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the church does not. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think this would be a true story, but all the same, it's, it's a statement on how we can view prayer. Reminds me of the, the farming community that community that's decided to, to meet at the church to pray for rain and only one person brought an umbrella. <laughs> uh, what do we really believe about prayer? What does it mean to pray differently? See, our main passage today is taken out of the pages of the early church in Acts. So if you want, you can grab a Bible, turn to your device, uh, to the book of Acts chapter 4. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, it's the story of the early church after the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. And as we look at the early church, we know one thing. They knew how to pray. And so we're going to look at their prayer. We're going to look at some of Paul's prayers as examples of, of how we can pray differently. But in the context of, of chapter 4, the context for the prayer we're looking at, Peter and John are, are headed to the temple at the time of prayer, and they meet a lame man. And the lame man, he's out there begging for money, and, and, and Peter goes up to him and says, Hey, I don't have silver or gold. I don't have what you want. But... Through Jesus, I can give you your feet back. And he heals them. And this, this man who's been lame for 40 years starts walking and jumping and praising God in the temple courts. And as you can imagine, probably people recognized him. And all of a sudden, they're seeing him dancing around the, the court, and, and it starts to draw a crowd. Peter sees the crowd. He's like, hey, I'm going to tell these people about Jesus. Although the religious leaders get wind of this, they don't like it. They arrest Peter and John. Peter and John spend the night in prayer, and, but as a result, 
This man's miracle and Peter's preaching, it says, many believed in the number who confessed Jesus as Lord grew to about 5,000. Well, the next day, the religious court uh, interrogates and and tries to intimidate Peter and John to to stop talking about Jesus. Um, Peter kind of turns the tables on them, though, and says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he drives home the message of the essence of the gospel message. Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Well, these religious leaders realize they're they're about to have a revival on their hands. And so they threaten Peter and John and they command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and John respond, we can't. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard, what we've witnessed. We must obey God rather than men. So after threatening them further, the religious court lets them go because all the people were were praising God for for what happened. And you think about, man, what what a series of events. Can you imagine what Peter and John must have been feeling at the end of that day? You know, they went from seeing God heal a man who had been crippled from birth to spending the night in jail to being interrogated, intimidated, threatened by some pretty angry people. How do they respond? They did what they always did. Starting in Acts 1, verse 14, Acts 2, 42, Acts 3, verse 1, they prayed. But how and, and what they prayed for, I think, is fascinating because it gives us an example of how to pray differently. And so if you're at in Acts 4, <clears throat> verse 23, 24 says this, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Here's the first thing, if we wanna pray differently, this is a big one, we pray differently when we pray together. Their own people refers to family and friends who are followers of Jesus. Peter and John's first desire is, hey, let's let's tell our faithful friends. And notice they they tell their faithful friends what's happened and their response was, wow, uh, that sounds rough. That's quite a story. Uh, We'll we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you in that. No, it says they they stopped what they were doing and, and they had a little prayer meeting. Uh, They came together to pray together. They prayed with one heart and mind, were united in purpose in the direction of their prayer. As we sometimes call this corporate prayer, which corporate prayer just is praying together as one unified group of people. I was like, well, what does that look like? Um, I think it's possible that one person prayed while those gathered gave audible assent to what was being prayed. They were praying along with what was being prayed. Uh, an example, in our, our Grace Group Tuesday night, I encouraged our group, instead of you know, taking time to share requests, I said, if you have a request, just, just pray it. And uh, you know, we'll pray alongside you as, as you're praying this request. Um, I think that's the essence here. You know, sometimes instead of spending 15, 20 minutes taking requests and then praying for five, you know, we can pray together this way. So as, as one, 
as one prayed, the others would pray along in agreement. You know, amen, yes, Lord, that's right. That's right, that's true. Um, the point is they were engaged in prayer together. They were focused and united in prayer for one thing. Uh, this wasn't a prayer meeting of a bunch of individuals praying for their own individual needs and requests. They, they were praying for the same things in the same direction. There were dangerous threats against talking about Jesus. They couldn't assume that they could keep on and be effective without God's help. Fear could have easily overtaken the church, so they prayed together. If we look through church history, God's people have gathered for corporate prayer. In fact, some of the greatest revivals started as believers came together in community prayer meetings. In the early church, believers met often, sometimes daily, for prayer and worship. So I was reading an article that was addressing some of our American habits of prayer, and um, they, were, they were talking about that our independent and individualistic culture has changed the communal essence and corporate necessity of what we used to think of as being the church. Uh, today we think of we can think of the church as a group of individuals pursuing their own goals who gather on Sunday. Uh, we can think that way rather than a community of Christ-centered followers of Jesus working together with one purpose. Here, here was their conclusion. This personal faith focus plays out most explicitly in the practice of prayer. Almost all American adults, 94% who have prayed at least once in the last three months, most often choose to pray by themselves. Not only are most prayers a solo practice, but the vast majority, 82%, are mostly silent. In other words, people pray mostly alone and in silence. It's a solitary activity defined primarily by the immediate needs and concerns of the individual. And the result is corporate prayer and corporate needs are less compelling drivers in people's prayer lives. As I, as I read that and I thought about it, <clears throat> and I thought about it in the context of praying differently, I think that when we pray together, we pray a lot differently than when we pray alone. When we pray alone, our prayers can revolve around us and our relationships and, and our days and, and our need. However, when we pray in a group, I think it expands our vision. Our vision of prayer becomes so much wider because I think the prayers of others can encourage and influence us to pray differently. I know it's happened to me. I've been praying in a group and praying for a certain thing, and, and somebody will pray something, and I'll be like, oh, I never thought to pray about that. And it opens, makes my prayer even wider. We pray different when we pray together. I think we do our best praying when we pray beyond our personal needs and persistently pray towards great things that God has purposed to accomplish. We do our best praying as a people united and focused by God's word and God's will. One of the articles I read made this bold statement. One of the ways over the years that the church has severely weakened corporate prayer is that we let prayer be about people rather than about God. 
We've allowed prayer to focus on every need of those in attendance and ignored the kingdom advance of God. Wow. I mean, it, it sounds a little harsh. It may be overstated a bit, but I, I think there's some truth to that. Because when all we do is, is pray through a list of needs, our focus becomes what God can do for us rather than what God can do through us and even beyond us. Uh, should we pray for one another? Definitely. Should we pray through lists? If, if that's what you do, absolutely. Should that be the only way we pray? No. You see, prayer together expands our prayers. I think these words from Paul towards the end of his letter to the Romans speaks into this. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist said it like this, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name, how? It says together. This element of being together in prayer leads us into worship. It, it helps us to worship. It reminds us how God is working, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others as well, the lives uh, in, in the world. Uh, in prayer together, we grow in love for God and for one another. We, we walk into a group that's praying together and we hear other praying, others praying words of deep devotion and love and trust for God. And it's like, wow, that encourages me. That deepens my trust and love and devotion to God. Uh, and we find ourselves uh, uh, really praying with family. Uh, our youngest son, Micah, just got back, back from Sweden. They were working with refugees and, and young people and, and, and just talking to him. He, he met some pretty awesome people there. And, and even though they spoke a different language, they live in a different culture, uh, they only knew each other for a few minutes. It was like being family. But especially as they prayed together for God to work in that city. Praying together brings us together. Um, then Jesus promises when we pray together, we receive this precious gift. Christ himself, Jesus himself promises to be among us. And so no matter how small our group or, or how weak our request, the one who lives to make intercession for us prays alongside of us. He says when his people are praying and gathering in his name, Jesus attends every time. And I think in a, in a time when the church seems more divided than ever, we need this. We need to pray differently by praying together. Corporate prayer connects us around a common purpose, seeking God's heart. And as we seek him together, there's this, there's this unity that we're not, we're not all pulling in our own direction. Our prayers become less about me and more focused on God's heart. Uh, it's fascinating. Dan, Nelson uh, Mandela's autobiography, he says, uh, it was the relationships in prison on Robben Island that got him through 30 years of suffering. I love what he says here. The authority's greatest mistake was to keep us together. For together, our determination was reinforced. We supported each other, gained strength from each other. Whatever we knew, whatever we learned, whatever we shared, uh, we, we shared it together. 
and by sharing, we multiplied whatever courage we had individually. The stronger ones raised up the weaker ones, and both became stronger in the process. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying we're better together. And that's why we'll continue the, the beat the drum of wanting you to find a grace group where you can connect with others. You can experience biblical community and, and live life together with others, pray together. You see, the early church prayed differently because they prayed together. So, but what did they pray for? I mean, it seems obvious thing to pray for would be for deliverance, protection. I mean, I think I would have prayed for God to deal with my enemies, you know, break their ankles so we know them by their limping, like that Irish prayer from a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, not really. <laughs> but I, I would pray protection for me, my family, and, and the church. Praying, and praying for protection and deliverance isn't a bad prayer. Jesus asked the Father to protect his followers from the evil one. But these early followers of Jesus had, had something else in mind that's fascinating. They, we look at how they prayed together. Listen to how they begin, verse 24. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He said, Here's what we're going to find in this prayer. He take, they take five verses to tell God who he is and just two to ask what they need. And in, in essence, they're praying exactly how Jesus taught them to pray. They're hallowing God's name in praise. They're, they're not just acknowledging, uh, not just praying to a higher power, but they're living, personal, all-powerful creator and Lord. Now understand, God doesn't need us to tell us who he is. <laughs> However, we need to pray this way because we need to know who he is. We need to remember and confess that he's the kind of God who has the, who has the power to fulfill his purposes. We need the reminder of who we're talking to. So you look at the first word, sovereign Lord, it refers to God's powerful and absolute control. And it's so good for us to be reminded of that when everything around us is, is confusing. Uh, God is in charge. He has purposes much greater than we can know, and therefore we can have confidence in his absolute control because he sees the whole picture we see in part. And after acknowledging his control, they acknowledge him as creator. And the implication here is that since the one who created the world is in control of all things, we don't have to worry or wonder if what's happening to us is, is outside his purpose or control. And so affirming God's rightful rule over creation, they're worshiping him for his supremacy. And they know that if God created everything in earth and sea and heaven, then these religious leaders, well, they're in his hands as well. You see, our problems become smaller only when our view of God becomes bigger. Jeremiah has some great prayers, but the one that they may have been thinking about when they prayed like this is, is found in chapter 32. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. You see, we pray differently when we understand who God is. Worship orients our heart to what we know to be true about God, and that impacts the direction of our prayers. It positions us to to pray for greater and more purposeful outcomes when we're reminded of who he is. You see, we, we need prayer because without it, we can forget what we know to be true about him. We need prayer in case we begin to live in a, a spirit of, of self-preoccupation. We need prayer so that we, we don't lose a sense of wonder and awe and, and gratitude. We need prayer because our natural tendency is towards self-reliance and this stubborn independence. Paul, a part of Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus demonstrates what it means to pray in accordance with who God is. Ephesians chapter 3 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people that grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God's love is immense and strong and indescribable. And he wants us to be able to grasp it, to comprehend it, to take hold of it, to to know it personally by experience. Paul prays that we would know it, we would understand it in our hearts because when we truly begin to grasp the immensity of God's love, it changes us radically. You see, God's love has an edge to it. It's radical, it's sweeping, it's extreme, but maybe even more mind-boggling is that it's personal, it's relational. This truth drives our prayers. C.S. Lewis wrote, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. A A proud man is always looking down on things and people. Of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see what's above you. Paul's prayer is that we look above to see God as he really is and we lean into his power and his immeasurable love. But their prayer didn't stop there. God, as ruler of all things, is also sovereign over the works and activities of evil men. They go back to God's word, the scriptures, to find perspective. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You see, we pray differently when we're rooted in God's truth. These followers of Jesus knew the scriptures. They knew how to pray because they understood what God wanted, his plan as as it was laid out in his word. In fact, there's about 200 references to the Old Testament in just the book of Acts. And this prayer reveals that they not only knew the Bible, they were able to apply it to their lives. And as they, as they remembered the scriptures, they saw their situation was similar to what David had prophesied in Psalm chapter 2. 
These enemies were enraged and trying to disrupt God's plan, but it would prove ineffective and useless. I mean, even if the whole world lined up against the anointed one, which is a reference to the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, um, it wasn't going to amount to anything. In fact, it isn't quoted here in Acts, but the psalm continues giving the Lord's response to these, these evil plotters. In verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. You see, understanding that God can't be dethroned nor his plan unraveled, Peter and John and their friends conclude in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, they went to God's word and saw this is all part of God's plan from the beginning. Just think about that for a moment. It's pretty amazing. Verse 27 is history. Uh, this, This just happened. It just happened that Jesus accused, condemned, crucified. And then verse 28 is is theology. It's the why. The early Christians understood that behind Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders, behind all of them stood God himself. You see, they had done evil in crucifying Christ of their own will, but God had ordained the outcome in his sovereignty. And all of this led to our salvation and freedom and reconciliation with God. You see, the early Christians believed that God's hand was at work in their persecution, not just to stop it, but to allow it in the first place. These followers of Jesus knew that God's power always carries out his will. They had absolute confidence in the sovereign Lord who had written history past, present, and future. And as we look back, we realize this persecution that they were experiencing scattered the church. It scattered the church and the message of the gospel went far and wide as as people took the message to places they had never considered going except under persecution. When When our prayers are rooted in God's word, we pray with a different perspective. We pray with God's perspective. You know, another portion of another prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus is that we be rooted and grounded in the reality and truth of who God is and what he's done for us. Ephesians 1, I, ask that, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. See, Paul prays that all the truths and riches that that he's reminded them of earlier in chapter 1, he prays that that just wouldn't just sit in their minds, lounge in their minds, but would connect with their hearts. God wants to see our understanding of him radically change the way we think and live in this world. God wants our knowledge of him to be a catalyst for this extreme makeover in our lives and our church. See, Paul's praying that their hearts may be stirred with a better knowledge of God that transcends academics and transforms lives. 
If you want life and perspective, it, it comes with knowing God, knowing who he is, what he's like. When we open ourselves to God's truth, what he's revealed about himself, we pray differently. They came together, they acknowledged who God is, they rooted themselves in his word, they asked God to consider their situation, and then they asked for two things. Verse 29, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. You see, we pray differently when we pray with conviction. They were convinced in their belief that Jesus is the hope of the world. This conviction made them more concerned about serving than safety. They weren't running away. They were asking for courage to continue to, to walk in the face of adversity, to remain faithful in the face of persecution. They pray for boldness. In the same way that Paul encouraged the church in Colossae to, to pray this way for him, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. It's amazing to me that while Paul is under house arrest, he doesn't ask for freedom, he doesn't ask for prayers for his release, better food, kinder prison guards, uh, vengeance on his accusers, nothing like that. His conviction in what he believes about Jesus drives this request that they pray for an open door for the good news of Jesus. Even though he, he's locked up under house arrest, <clears throat> he was able to minister effectively. And he wanted and needed the prayers of God's people for the doors of opportunities to open. But what, ha <clears throat> but what, what happens if there's an open door and, and nothing goes through it? Well, that's Paul's next request, verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. In other words, Lord, open doors of opportunity so we can share the hope we have in Jesus. Give us boldness to walk through those doors and share the gospel clearly and boldly and wisely and graciously. And what's so cool is that, you know, they must have prayed this for him because we get to see the answer to this prayer in Acts 28. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house where he was under house arrest. He welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we praying for open doors? Are we praying for open doors? Set a time, set a place, try something like, you know, I'll pray for my three at three every day. Has set your watch or your clock or whatever it is. Pray for two at two, whatever it may be. Pray for open doors and then the boldness and wisdom to walk through those opportunities. The second thing they prayed may, may feel a little weird. In verse 30, it says, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of our holy servant, Jesus. Here's how I'm going to state this. We pray differently when we ask for what only God can do. When we ask for what only God can do. They asked God to do the miraculous. They prayed with expectancy. These miracles they were praying to God uh, to do authenticated the message of the gospel. It gave credibility to these early followers of Jesus. It showed people that God's power and presence 
is real and relevant and Jesus is who he said he was. He says, sometimes we can box our prayers in and you know, sometimes I can pray some pretty weak prayers because sometimes we, I can only, we only pray for what we can do. Not only can we pray for boldness, but praying differently also looks like praying bold prayers. We can pray with imagination for what only God can do. Going back to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, he concludes by saying in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do a little bit more than I can. No, it doesn't say that. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or, or even imagine, according to his work that is, <clears throat> that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In other words, God, do what only you can do. Make your name famous. Paul uses every word possible to convey just the vastness of God's power. He is able. In other words, God's not limited. He is able to do. God is an idol. He's actively participating in our world according to his plan and purpose. He is able to do immeasurably more. His abilities are far beyond our expectations. This phrase, immeasurably more, literally means super abundantly more, with more added to it. <laughs> In other words, greater than, greater than. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He goes beyond what we can even fathom. In light of this, how do we pray for what only God can do? There's a story about a, a very successful loan officer who uh, always dreamed of, of running a gas station, but it failed miserably because ever, whenever a customer came in, they would ask for $20 in gas. This, this loan officer would respond, can you get by with only 10? You see, God isn't like that. He exceeds our expectations and assumptions. He encourages us to come with big, hairy, audacious prayers. Someone has said, don't ever put a period where God puts a comma. You see, when we shrink God, we offer mundane prayers without faith and work without passion. We serve without joy. We suffer without hope. We, we live without a greater purpose. Living with a small God leads to powerless living where everything is too difficult, too big, too impossible. Another story is told of a farmer who sold a, a businessman a chainsaw that was guaranteed to cut down like 50 trees in a single day. A week later, <clears throat> this businessman, who was very unhappy, he tracked down the farmer. He, he said, hey, this chainsaw doesn't work. Now, I could only cut down three, three trees a day, not, not the 50 that you promised. The farmer said, well, let me, let me see that. And he, picked up the chainsaw, he looked it over, he pulled the cord and the chainsaw roared the life and the businessman looked startled. It's like, what's that noise? <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I suspect that many of us have felt that same way when it comes to prayer. I pray, but nothing happens. Our prayers feel more like we're pruning trees with, with sporks or butter knives. It, it, but it doesn't have to be that way. See, God has created us and designed his church to depend upon his power. 
and to yield to his spirit within us as we abide, remain in Christ. Easter is the ultimate demonstration of this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the power of God overcomes the greatest obstacles. He brings life from death. He breathes hope into despair. The world doesn't need more religious people, but people who are determined to know him deeply, to love him fully, to follow him completely, praying for what only God can do. I like what one pastor once said, some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set fire in the middle. You see, it's, it's easy to pray without paying attention. It's easy to pray dull prayers with no imagination for what God might do. In fact, one Puritan author said, when you pray, let your heart be without words rather than your words without heart. So what was the result of this prayer? Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God did what only he could do. And we see from what follows, God didn't make their lives easier. He gave them what they needed to fulfill his purpose. See, the apostles performed many miracles in Jesus' name. More people were saved. Crowds gathered. The apostles were arrested and thrown in jail. God rescued them miraculously. They resume preaching. They are, they're warned again. Peter, Peter preaches again. They're beaten and released. And it says they leave the council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the, the name of Jesus. And they continued to preach wherever they went. And the church multiplied throughout the world. And today, today, we're the recipients of their faithfulness and a different kind of prayer that was dependent on only what God could do. What might it look like for us to pray differently? It might look like not just praying for the safety of the people of Ukraine and the end to this war. That's a good prayer. But to pray differently, maybe God would use this to strengthen and spread his church in, a, in that region and around the world. It might look like not just praying for good weather for service Sunday today, but, but for open doors to literally and figuratively <clears throat> see doors open to live to make Jesus make sense, that our neighbors in Norton might see a visible demonstration of Jesus' love. It might look like not just praying for blessing, but for opportunities to be a blessing. It might look like not just praying for provisions, but praying for opportunities to be generous. It might look like not just praying for healing, but for strength to suffer with hope so others might see Jesus in us. It might look like not just praying in solitude and silence, but praying in unity in the same direction with others. It might look like not just praying for comfort, but with the conviction that God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And I think, man, may we pray more like these early followers of Jesus with confidence in our sovereign Lord. May we pray because we can't continue the walk on our own. May we be more broken than comfortable, more spirit-filled than self-reliant, and may we sing because we can't be silent about the depth of God's love for us and his power to do greater things than we can ask or imagine. Now, I, 
I don't normally do things like this, but I feel it's appropriate this today. Um, I just want to close with a prayer written sometime in the 16th century. Uh, it's a different prayer, but I think that's one we can pray in agreement together. So if you would, pray with me today. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, with the, <clears throat> when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizon of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Father, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.